Hello, everybody. It is time for episode three of the Sunday Digest. My name is Luke Thomas. Today, we're going to take a look at UFC 256 results, analysis, the whole nine yards. If this is something you want to see, please give the video a thumbs up, smash the subscribe button, and uh, let's get to it. So we'll go through the entire card here. Um, not every fight with an equal amount of time, but I'll focus in on the big th uh, key details, starting with the main event and then working backwards. Okay? All right. Thumbs up, subscribe. Let's hit it. All right. So what can we say? Um, a lot. I did a post-fight reaction for the Morning Combat channel. Uh, I'll post that in up here so you can take a look at it because uh, I go into a lot of sort of instant reaction but some broader themes from the fights last night, starting with Devison Figueredo and Brandon Moreno who fought to a draw 48-46 and then two 47s. I thought it was 47-46, but I, 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 whatever. One judge had it um, for Figueredo and then there was two 47-47s. At the time, I thought Figueredo had one... I did not think it was as close as the commentators had thought. I had people writing me being like, oh, do you think the commentators were trying to you know, sell the fight uh, on Moreno's behalf? No, I mean, maybe it looked that way to them. you got to remember, fights always, not always, fights routinely look a little bit different when you're right in front of them versus on the television broadcast. So I don't uh, suggest that there's anything nefarious about the way in which they interpreted it. Just the same, I did not necessarily see it that way. But the fight is actually quite competitive. And the draw, I think, as I said last night, it's not off-putting. A lot of times you get to a draw, and even if you can rationalize that that's the fairest conclusion, there's something unsatisfying about it. But in this case, Dana White saying after the fact that he's going to pursue an immediate rematch, so we'll see what happens with that. But more to the point, it just actually is the way that it should have gone. I mean, it wasn't that the fight was even on all terms, right? That's actually not quite true. But it had sort of a general balance between things Moreno and Figueredo. What do I mean by that? If you look at the overall amount of strikes that both attempted and landed, it's fairly similar. Figueredo doing a little bit better work in that regard, both I think in terms of heavier strikes and uh, slightly more volume, but not too much, right? So they were fairly even, but it leaned kind of in one way. On the other hand, while Figueredo was able to get two of four takedowns, Moreno was able to get four of eight, right? So a little bit more of a balance towards the other way. And then if you look at the actual fight complexion itself, Figueredo likes to stand really far away and then lunge in, and he'll lunge in with different weapons. Sometimes he'll lunge in just with a body jab. Sometimes he'll lunge in with an overhand right. He'll switch stance. Sometimes if he's open stance, so he's left to Moreno's right, he'll throw the body kick. Um, a lot of times, though, with the, the whole key piece there is he has to, he has to cover a lot of distance. Um, he'll use the smashing right elbow if he has got Moreno backed up close to the fence. But what you would notice is even if he landed something like that, what you would get in the end was a scenario where if he overcommitted, Moreno would block a lot of it and then fire back combos in short order. I don't think he had the punching power that Figueredo did, but there was just there was all these ways where they weren't equal, but it balanced out in the end. And I think people really appreciated that. Moreno has the style where he sort of leans over on his front leg uh, very low. Both of them kind of leaned over low a little bit, which is why I was surprised like the uppercut wasn't more of a weapon given that. Um, Figueredo going to the leg kicks a lot, but he not as consistently as maybe he should have. Moreno surprising with his takedown prowess and ability to avoid danger in the scrambles. Uh, really, really you know, well-suited for the moment. And I think, if not surprised a lot of people, certainly earned a lot of people's respect. I think that's probably very clear at this point. So... 
Um, if you had it for Moreno outright, I don't quite see that case. But with the point deduction, which, you know, we got to say something. Referee Jason Herzog did a phenomenal job in that fight. Just, he, he, you know, he is not perfect. He makes mistakes. And remember, he was the one who stopped the Smith versus Teixeira fight a little bit uh, late. But, well, depending on one's perspective, but a little bit late. And, you know, he even acknowledged as much after the fact, even though Anthony Smith got bitter at him. But here you have a scenario where, you know, he just really did the job effectively. Like, these referees are not going to be perfect. All you can ask them to do is their best job. And if they make a mistake, like anybody else, to learn from it and let that fuel your occupational competency. Um, and I think you get that with with, with just, uh, Jason Herzog. Um, as for Figueredo, what was kind of interesting for me in thinking about this is, you know, he had all this swag going into this fight. And I think he, this fight was a bit of a wake-up call that, like, you know, yeah, you might be the best flyweight most of the time in this division, but the idea that you can just walk into a fight and you're going to do what you did to Alex Perez or Benavidez, that's not the case. There's going to be some guys in this division. And Moreno's, how old is Moreno, what, 27? Yeah, I mean, he's 27 years old. This guy's got, honestly, his best days, it seems to me, if he can avoid all the damage, his best days are probably in front of him. He does not have the punching power that Figueredo does, but the overall ability to manage around, to find his moments of offense, um, very, very good. Very good. Really a coming-of-age moment for Brandon Moreno in this fight. And, almost, you know, wake-up call is a strong word for Figueredo because I still thought he was the better of the two. But, you know, a little bit of a, you know, don't get, don't get too high on your own supply kind of moment for Figueredo in terms of what Moreno and, and maybe some other ones in this division um, can offer him. So we'll see what they ultimately get in terms of a rematch. Figueredo was taken to the hospital as a precautionary measure. Um, I was amazed he could make the weight in such short order. The, the remaining question here is, is this the best fight in flyweight history? We talked about this on the morning combat reaction. You know, it's either this one or I think the second Mighty Mouse and John Dodson fight. So... You know, maybe the answer is yes. Maybe it's number two, three at worst, or something. The bigger question for me is two things. One, what does this do for Figueredo in fight of the year? Because I thought he won, but I also thought that the penalization was fair by Herzog, which means I can't really complain about it being a draw. Is that still your fighter of the year for an amazing run up to this point and a job well done here, but not like. You know, usually when when you had Cody Garbrandt, he went from unranked to champion in a year, right? Not he only won all the fights, but there was a sort of emphatic coronation moment. He didn't quite end the year that way, so that kind of muddies it a little bit. Kevin Holland, I think, if he comes back and beats Chemaev, where he's got like you know six fights in a calendar year, less than that, six fights since May, that he'll have won. I mean, that's a big task to come back in a week, and it's a big task to fight Chemaev. I'm just saying that. To me, still wouldn't be enough, but that would make it a little bit dicier. I mean, the answer is he probably still gets it, but if you have an alternate choice, I'd be curious to hear what it is. The other piece of it is, you know, is this fight of the year? And the the, the folks were saying it's either this one or it's the opening fight of the year, which I forgot even took place in 2020, which was Yuani uh, and Jacek and uh, Zhang Weili. Uh, I scored that fight for Yuani and Jacek, despite the fact that you know she's not my favorite person in the world, but I you got to give credit where it's due. I thought she won that contest, um, but you know, in the end, can't complain. The fight was very close, so uh, you know, Zhang Weili, um, uh, an honorable champion. I'm going to say that that fight was better. Um, it's hard for me to believe that the best fight in women's MMA, which everyone called it at the time, is not as good as the best or second best flyweight men's fight. In fact, getting more specific to it, 
The fifth fight of Yuan and Jacek and Zhang Wiley was a barn burner. The fifth round, or should I say fifth fight? The fifth round of that fight. The fifth round of Figueredo and Moreno, it was good, but it had fallen off a cliff relative to how good the first four rounds were, which were absolutely exquisite. So because that fifth round in Figueredo Moreno is not nearly as good as that fifth round in Zhang Wiley and Yuan and Jacek, uh, I'm going to go with the ladies' fight. It's probably your fight of the year. And I'm curious to see what the output was. Um, just real quick, I did not think about this until just this moment. What was the output in that fight in terms of what those ladies landed on each other? So you had, yeah, I mean, they landed a lot more too. 185 to 165. In the case of, um, let's pull up Brandon Moreno. I think he was in the 130s, low 120s. Something like that for this one. And again, you know, that doesn't mean it's the same kind of quality. Yeah, 132 to 137, Moreno and Figueredo. And in this one for Zhang Wiley and Yuani and Jacek, it's uh, 165, 186. You know, much higher output. Eight takedown attempts from Zhang Wiley. She got one of them. Um, you know, just extraordinary output. So I'm going to give it to those ladies. I think they deserve it a little bit more, right? You got to call it like you see it, and I just thought that was spectacular. But, okay, second best fight of the year. Certainly, in my mind, the best fight in that facility uh, since Poirier versus Hooker, and you can like it more than Poirier versus Hooker, but as I mentioned previously, if you think about it as a bookend, if that was the uh, the best fight up to in the apex up to that point, what has been the best fight since that point seems to me like this is the obvious call here. So, um, shouts to those guys. Now, I spent a fair amount of time yesterday talking about Tony Ferguson losing to Charles Oliveira. Let me give you the uh, numbers on this very quickly. 30-26 across the board. 10-8 first round had to be because his arm nearly, if not outright, got broken by um, Dobronx. What can we say? Well, as I mentioned, went over a lot of this on Morning Combat. I rewatched the fight. And two things stick out to me. I think in terms of the ground game, any version of Tony Ferguson, in terms of the ground game, would not have been able to handle the ground pressure of what and the skills of what Oliveira offered. I mean, that's a, that's a little bit bold. Maybe that's not quite right, but it does feel like um, that would have been a weakness he would have been able to exploit no matter what. I think you should acknowledge that. I said it last night. The guy came into the UFC in, on the card where Matt Yushchenko fought Jones. Uh, Charles Oliveira did. I mean, a completely different era. They fought on verses on that card. You know, the level of improvement a person, a fighter can make from 20 to 25 and then 25 to 30 is extraordinary, especially if you can stick around in the UFC despite ups and downs, which is exactly what he did. So, um, uh, that's fine. But I said it last night. It's like in MMA, fans are um, uh, like totally opposed to the idea that a fighter can experience decline until the evidence is so overwhelming that they don't want to, that, that, that there's no point you can acknowledge, that you can't ignore it anymore. Like, it took a long time for fans to be like, yo, BJ Penn maybe shouldn't be here. Or, and even, there, even I'm even talking like, you know, grading him on a curve, like, yeah, let's give him the Clay Guidas of the world or whatever. And they were still very much, you know, opposed to the idea that, like, he couldn't make a turnaround. If you listen to MMA commentary, and this is not just true of UFC, it's true of Bellator, too, and all the other promotions, because the promotion controls the commentary, you'll know, and the world is small, right? It's a small town MMA. Everyone knows everyone else's business. No one wants to call it like they see it. Not often. People have a reputation for, like, doing that. People don't do it in MMA. Very, It's actually quite rare. Uh, and they definitely don't do it in commentary. 
um, every time a fighter goes up there, it's the rosiest picture ever. Oh, they came in on short notice? Oh, that's good news because they didn't have to spend all that time torturing themselves. Oh, they had a 12-week camp? Well, that's perfect because that means they have the most preparation. Oh, they're coming in off three losses? You know what? They're going to be more motivated than ever. Oh, they came off of a severe injury and they've been out two years? You know, probably that's a little bit of ring rust, but they're probably motivated to get back. There's never a scenario where you ever are asked as a consumer watching an MMA product to acknowledge the reality of the difficulties. And I get it. Why would you? Because it's not fun. Also, you don't exactly know what part of those difficulties are going to materialize and not. Yes, it's a reasonable concern to ask if someone's been out two years or if they're coming in off three losses or something. You know, does that mean it's automatically going to have an effect in the subsequent bout? No, not necessarily, right? So I understand having a degree of optimism about it. But if there's going to be a degree of optimism, there should be a degree of, if not pessimism per se, at a bare minimum, rational skepticism. Rational skepticism is completely missing in MMA commentary. It's because the commentators are not asked to do it. They're not tasked by their bosses to do it. That's, that's where it all comes down to. And so, you know, previously you had JDS coming in. Oh, there's all kinds of reasons to think that he's figured it out this time. Or in the case of Jacare, you know, Jacare motivated, blah, 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 blah. I mean, these guys are absolutely at the end of, at a bare minimum, their UFC run. In the case of Jacare, probably his MMA run, you know, if you watch a boxing commentators where the promotion is usually distinct from who's calling it, you know, they try to remain professional about it, but they'll call out what they see as bad matchmaking or a fighter on the decline or whatever. It's, it's, a, it's a disservice to the fans that you don't see it. The, the promoter doesn't want to make the product look bad or, the, you know, necessarily in that way throw the fighter under the bus. They might throw them under the bus in other ways if there's a dispute with the promotion or something. But, you know, in that particular way, not throwing them under the bus. All of this is to say is like, can we automatically declare that Tony Ferguson has declined relative to whatever his peak may be, whether you think that's the Pettis fight or the Cerrone fight or Kevin Lee fight or whatever. That's your call. Whatever your peak is, has he declined from that one? Can I declare to you that it is obviously true and there's no other explanation? No, I cannot declare that to you. Am I very suspicious that that is absolutely contributing to his last two performances? Yes. In fact, this last one in particular, I don't know where Rashad Holloway was, his boxing coach. I looked him up on Instagram. You know, He hasn't posted there since November, but I did not see him in his corner. I did not see Eddie Bravo in his corner. And more to the point, there was like a certain energy missing. You know, Brian Campbell and I had talked about it where – he, in his interviews, was like, I'm done chasing title shots and blah, blah, blah. He had sort of said, you know, I'm over that last chapter of my career. And, you know, are you over it in a way where you're re-motivated for the next one? Or are you over it in a way where are you going to be able to maintain that level of dominance? It, it was an open question. And there was just, you know, so the coaches weren't there. He was saying things weirdly pre-fight. And then I noticed something pre-fight when they introduced him. And I'm not telling you this is a scientific observation. In fact, Far from it. But I went back and I looked at all of his other intros. You know, when Buffer is shouting him out, he does like the hand roll thing. Or he does the two um, level changes side to side as he's being introduced. Like he's doing like a wrestling level change. You know, and he's warming up and he's got this swag and he's got this energy. He didn't do any of that this time. You know, he was kind of moving back and forth, staying warm or whatever. But he was just pacing back and forth. I mean, El Kukui usually comes out there with... You know, he's. I mean, remember the one time in the Cerrone fight where the camera was right in front of him and he pushed the camera by the lens out of the way? You know, you just have to ask yourself, like, y'all don't see a difference there? I quite obviously see a difference there. 
Now, what it all means, I don't know. Is it permanent? I don't know. How much of it is there? I don't know. I don't think Tony Ferguson is completely diminished. That's not my, my argument, or that he can't win again, or win a great win against a great fighter again. But to me, you know, there's two problems with, with the argument that that's the same as he ever was. One, um, from the striking standpoint, maybe. There's not quite enough tape because the majority of that fight in each round took place on the ground. So that, to me, is inconclusive. Maybe Maybe it's the same. And on the ground, you're dealing with a much different operator. But even against, like, Kevin Lee, he was doing better guard retention. He was elbowing. He was scrambling. He was trying to get on top. He was going right to rubber guard. You just didn't see any of that. Granted, that could have been Oliveira. I don't know. My only point is, he does to me, at age 36, he'll be 37 in six weeks or so, to have a different energy about him. And it's not, to me, the same energy he had in the last couple of fights. At least pre-fight, anyway. And so, is there a lingering effect from the Gaethje fight? Hard to say, but I'm definitely suspicious that there could be. MMA fans have been treated to this world where it doesn't matter how bad the difficulties are in a particular fight, there's always a way to overcome it. Because the next time they come out there, the commentators are just going to say what a great opportunity it is, and no matter what, how everything has been fixed, and it's all hunky-dory, and it's blah, blah, blah. And I'm not saying that their jobs are easy, man. It's a very difficult job. And they're not asked to do anything else. But it's a total disservice. It's a total disservice. Dude, if you take a beating like the one Ferguson took in his last fight, you better acknowledge it. And uh, Rogan and uh, Cormier did during the fight itself. So, you know, in that particular way, I should acknowledge as much, right? Um, and, you know, everyone wants to believe that these guys can do the best of themselves. Listen, here, here's my view on what happened with Ferguson. My hunch, and this is not scientific, my hunch is that that beating, um, I'm not going to say changed him, but it's it's still stuck with him a little bit. Some of the memory of it, um, if the effects, I don't know, but the way in which he had thought of himself, not as unbeatable, but as the guy who, who can get it done, who could dominate. You know, like looking across the guy, I remember he would go, my Matt, my Matt. You didn't see any of that this time. Um, there, there's a little bit of fire that has I didn't see this time that I had seen in previous fights. A little bit of swag, a little bit of energy, a little bit of like anger, a little bit of, little bit of rudeness even. I didn't see it this time. It was much more accepting of the circumstances. So is that permanent? I don't know. We'll have to see again. But at age 37, time is not on his side. And while I thought the stand-up was pretty good, um, and Oliveira may have beaten the best version of Ferguson no matter what, I just get really exasperated at the idea that the only way to explain this is that Oliveira got better. I mean, can there be any doubt that Oliveira is, a? I mean, by orders of magnitude, better than he used to be? Yes. But it, 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 to me, I'm not sure that Ferguson is the same. And even if he is, even if he's exactly the same, dude, the rest of the, the division is catching up and the, the ability to hold on. And that's not just true for him. By the way, I don't want to make the single out Ferguson here or something. This is not just true for him. This is true for a lot of fighters at the top of there who are starting to put on some age. Right, Their time is probably going to be limited too as these other guys who are just moving up are going to begin to take over. So we'll see how it goes. You know, But um, I, you know, if they had fought in April, do you like this version of Ferguson to have beaten Nurmagomedov? Uh, you know, I don't. I think Nurmagomedov probably would have really done a number on him. Um, so... You know, take that for what it is worth. What do you want to say about Oliveira, dude? Let's talk about how he won just a little bit. Uh, he was able to make Tony pay for being overcommitted, right? So he, Tony would, like, push into him, and you'd see Oliveira kind of parry or block and roll with it. And now 
you, Tony's right on top of him, and he would fire back, and Tony would be out of position. And so Oliveira would land and push him back, and then once he got him along the fence, the takedowns were perfect. He was able to catch kicks um, in the second round to put him down, and then on the ground, man, how he can use even the instep of his foot to anchor on another foot or to anchor on the hip um, to, to, to maintain top control. Um, he was very good about using shoulder pressure to get uh, Ferguson to look away, which would isolate his neck and his shoulders. Um, he, he just has complete command. He knows when to ground and pound. His mount can move between the different kinds of mount, whether you're, where you're high up or whether you're low back on the hips. He's really quite gifted at that. He can maintain top control when the person rolls underneath. Dude, he's a handful. He's a handful for anybody. So and, and by the way, the other part about Oliveira is, you know, sometimes he would fight a little bit recklessly. To me, he fought so strategically here, so wisely, so, you know, it was dangerous and pragmatic sitting for that armbar at just the end there. And I, I want to explain something about that armbar. Is that a textbook armbar? Well, sort of. Which is to say, you know, if you want to be a real a-hole and nitpick, you could be like, well, his feet were crossed, which is not necessarily wrong. Um, but the whole usually arm bars are taught with the feet not necessarily crossed, knees pinched, um, and then you know you're bringing your your heels to your rear end as tightly as you can, using the hamstrings to really control. His was a little bit more open, uh, both in terms of how far uh, open he was head to toe, and then also his knees were open as a consequence. Although he was still good about having one of the legs cover the face of Ferguson, and that's used to control their posture. Um, that part, you know. Those are MMA adaptations that I think fighters make to um, account for some of the MMA realities that a textbook armbar won't necessarily give you. However, the arm control was textbook. And what do I mean by that? What you're looking for is if you have an arm, if, I'm, if you're listening to this on podcast, this, I'll try to explain, but if you're watching on the video, I'm, I'm cupping the mic in front of me with both of my hands, right? And what you want is you want to have that person's thumb pointing to the sky, Okay, so you're on your back. You want their thumb, whether it's their right hand or their left hand, you don't want it pointing to the left, you don't want it pointing to the right, and you definitely don't want it pointing down because they're going to roll through. You want it pointing to the sky, and you want the elbow isolated above your hips. Man, that is pretty much what he had. And then he was able to tuck it behind his own armpit, and that's when you saw that really nasty flexion. Dude, Tony Ferguson is one of the toughest people I've ever seen. Ever. Ever, 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 ever. I cannot tell you that would have gotten the tap from virtually anybody. And I think there was a moment there where his body instinctively, it almost looked like he was going to, and then he forced it by sheer will and control of his mind to not give into it. But let me tell you something, folks. That was wow. Wow. His ability to avoid the, uh, the tap there, extraordinary extraordinary and then he goes out in the second round and he was a little bit more open with his stand-up but his left arm was toast at that point so he was trying to use different weapons and that's when uh the kick got caught and he got taken down and blah 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 you know he just couldn't really get back to being himself it was a dominant performance by Oliveira because he has come leaps and bounds and I'm just not convinced that that same fiery Ferguson from before is there right now whether or not he can reclaim that that is very much an open question um, you know, I, I, you don't want to oversell any comparisons to Tyron Woodley because he's not Tyron Woodley, but you don't want to just ignore what is a clear decline in performance by just saying, oh, well, his opponents got better. Well, one, well, that means the division is leaving him behind. So that's not really an answer to the question that you suggest he's as good as ever. 
Uh, and two, I'm not even sure if that's true. That 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 the, that this is the very same one. We'll see. He's got a he's got some regrouping to do. Uh, okay, so let's go to the rest of these results from this card that was just extraordinary. Mackenzie Dern fighting Verna Jan, uh, Janji. And by the way, this was uh, shouts to Nanda Prates, or Prates on Twitter. She was saying that they were pronouncing her name wrong. Not Fernanda's name, but Verna Janji Roba. They were saying it's Janji Doba, but it's Roba. They said they, they were just inventing a D. I don't know. But anyway, Mackenzie Dern wins 29-28 across the board. Didn't mind the call. Um... Janji Roba had uh, the had the right strategic mind for this, which is to say you could see she understood what her task was. But by sheer force of will, Dern took it away. I mean, Dern goes in there and fights at distance and just tries to bully her way through. There was a time in that third round where she goes in five back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back exchanges. She, she's far away, and she lunges in, jab cross, and then goes again, jab cross, and then goes again, Jab cross, and then goes again. I mean, we're talking like like in quick succession, jab cross, and then again, jab cross, and that fifth jab cross forced a clinch, and then from there she tried to do different stuff. But it's it's you know, it's clear to me she is not at all afraid of striking, and for a lot of jujitsu people, that is a big hurdle to climb. That's not her issue, but she doesn't have a ton of weapons. Have you guys noticed that? Like, she doesn't resort to like the knees or a jumping switch knee or you know. Um, you know, leg kick, high kick, or a lot of teeps. It's a lot of just boxing and then a little bit of kicking involved. So while I appreciate, A, the level of her ground game, and B, her absolutely broke her nose and just kind of thugged it out, I mean, she's obviously tough as shit. Uh, But to me, if she really wants to climb that division and become champion, if such a thing is even possible, there's going to be a level of striking sophistication that is not quite there. So Genji Roba had the right idea in terms of accepting pressure and then finding openings, but I don't think had enough technical acumen to pull it off. And so Dern's just grittiness eventually sold the sold the or did the job for it. So we were talking about some of the more depressing elements from this. The good side is Kevin Holland. Um, of course, he defeats the uh, the great Jacare Ronaldo Souza one forty five in the first round. He was taken down, which I thought Souza had the right game plan. Like, don't strike with this guy, right? Just take him down. Smart, okay? But then after that, he kind of sits up on his knees, and there is a punch that uh, Holland lands from his back that is annoying but doesn't hurt Jacare. And then he does like a halfway technical getup, and from there he lands a punch. So he's still not really like fully with his weight under him and lands a punch on Jacare, and that rocks him. And then... Holland stands up and finishes him off, and Jacare is like on his knees and then falling backwards. I said it on Twitter. It it reminded me of one of those fights that ends on crime faces. You guys know crime faces? Whose hood is this? <laughs> that guy on Instagram. It was like you know you see street fights end that way, where somebody's just you know drunk and then gets folded by like a lawn chair. He just couldn't believe it. How many losses in a row is that for Jacare? First of all, Jacare, forty-one years old. He was born in nineteen seventy-nine, which is when I was. Fo- He's lost four of his last five. The win he has was over Weidman in 2018. Hasn't won over two years. And then the last of the three, Hermanson, he got decisioned. The fight against Blahovich sucked, and then he got viciously KO'd in this one. I don't know what the UFC is going to do, but they keep talking about roster cuts. This is one I would pay attention to. You might see this. People are asking me if they're going to cut Tony Ferguson. I don't think so. Again, the jury is out about to what extent he can recover and will recover. You can't close the book on him, 
But it is pretty clear that Jacare's best days are far behind him at this point. There is a new generation of fighter that is coming up. And this goes back to what we were saying before. It's like, oh, those contender series guys are going to just be cheaper contracts for the UFC and they're going to replace all the older ones. Well, Kevin Holland probably is cheaper than Jacare in terms of a fight purse. I have to look that up to be sure. But what I can also say pretty clearly is even if he is, who cares? He's better than him. So it's like, yeah, you might be true by the sort of literalness of the thesis, but but the spirit of the thesis and the argument it seems quite wrong. Again, we'll have to see who they cut. I'm not declaring to you they're going to cut him, but this is one you, again, keep your eye on whether or not Jacare uh, has a future in the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Kevin Holland, on the other hand, what a year this guy's had, right? Unbelievable. I mean, here's his 2020. He stops Alex, uh, excuse me, not Alex, Anthony Hernandez with strikes. Uh, in the first. Stops Joaquin Buckley with strikes in the third. Has a tough fight against Darren Stewart, but wins. Uh, beats the shit out of Charlie Ontiveros, and then knocks out Jacare in his easiest, and sh- uh, no, second easiest win to date. Um, pretty, pretty impressive. Now, he had you know previously been stopped by Brendan Allen, but he is on an absolute roll. That first fight wasn't until May. Five wins in the UFC in 2020, Starting in May, fought in May and August, September, October, skipped November, and then fought in December, and is trying to get a fight against Kamzat Chemaev next week. Again, I don't know if the strength of schedule is enough to warrant him getting fighter of the year. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not, but it's still damned impressive. Um, Cyril Gon defeating Junior Dos Santos. I have to rewatch this one, but my memory told me that Dos Santos was doing okay at you know, and to the extent that the fight was at boxing range, and Gon was doing a pretty good job for the most part avoiding that. But then people were like, no, DeSantos lost the first. You could be right. I, I, maybe I was not paying close enough attention. You know, sometimes these fights uh, kind of wash over me and I'm not watching the right things. But in any case, the, the key was I did not think Gon had the hands that DeSantos did, but he did obviously have the range command and then he could fight, fight further away, which has always been some one of the Achilles heels of JDS. So he just sort of lightened him up at distance and then lands a jab, a long jab, to switch things up, which sends JDS kind of reeling. The elbow that lands hit his ear, which is supposed to, or at least made contact with the ear, which is supposed to be legal. There's a, I put out a tweet about it. There's a whole demonstration about how it goes. There's like a halfway through the head. There's like a blacked out area here you can't touch. And then there's like where the mullet would be you're not supposed to touch. But even behind the ear, there is a spot where you can. His was on the borderline as JDS was kind of turning. So certainly not an illegal strike by intention. Even then, kind of borderline. Either way, I don't think it matters. And JDS has been on an insanely tough run. He is 36 36 years old. And this is his last two years. So he did have a win over Derek Lewis. Back in March of 2019, but since then, lost to Francis Ngannou, lost to Curtis Blades by stoppage. By the way, first round for Ngannou, second round for Blades, second round for Jair Zinho Rosenstrike, second round for Cyril Gan. The division has is moving on without him, right? Are you gonna? And then what are you gonna say? This is the same guy. It's not the same guy. This is not the same guy that knocked out Kane the first time. It's not. Absolutely not even close to that guy. You know. But again. We just don't want to talk about decline for some reason. Let's go to the prelim card if we can here. Cub Swanson defeating Daniel Pineda, 152 of the second round. This was a guy that had lost four in a row himself, and now he has climbed back and won two in a row at age 37. That's why you can't got to be careful about burying people. He had the win over Crone, and then a very Cub-like win over Daniel Pineda, where just, you know, meeting these blood and guts type fights. You know, that's how Daniel Pineda fights too. I mean, he's technical when he needs to be. He's got submissions on his win record, I believe. 
Um, but, you know, when they want to just sort of throw down and have these, like, real dogfights, Pineda can do that. It's just that Swanson's been doing that longer and at a higher level. And I think really has retooled himself a little bit to make the... I, I don't think Cub would tell you he's, like, on track for a title shot, but he still wants to compete. He still wants to get the best out of himself. And he still thinks he can win at this level, and I think he's right. Um, and so you're seeing the the fruits of that labor. So vicious, vicious win by Cub Swanson. Uh, Rafael Fazayev defeating Hanato Moicano. People didn't like the stoppage, which I understand. The thing was this. He got hit with a big shot and then another one that sent him to the canvas. And when he did, his head bounced off the canvas. And it may have woken him up or maybe he woke up after that by virtue of just naturally kind of coming to a little bit. But if a referee intervenes after your head slams back on the canvas, is it the best stoppage in the world? No, it is not. Chris Tayoni did not necessarily give the best stoppage. Am I going to beat him up for it? Definitely not. I, I understand the intervention there, even if it warranted a little extra damage being delivered. But Fazayev, you know, uh, Moicano's jab is long. He was landing it. He's been trying to retool himself here at 155 pounds. But Fazayev, do you guys notice the combo? He was trying to, he covered distance with trickery and speed. And then, and then off, t- uh, off rhythm attacks. So here's what I mean. Here he would go low to one side to the body. Uh, and then high to the other side of the body. And now he's in a position to go back to where he had initially gone low. But instead of going bop, 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 he goes one, two, three. Right? The off-rhythm attack. So you know if you can, if, if you've ever seen Rampage roll with punches in his prime, he would just roll kind of on rhythm because that's how a lot of strikes were coming at him. Fizayev would go high, low, side to side, and then add in the rhythm change through the combination to make opportunities more available to him. I mean, he is nasty. Y'all got to stop playing with him. <laughs> Anybody who's fighting Fazayev, you better get on your wrestling shoes and camp, man. Stop fucking with this guy. You know, you might land on him. Maybe, and look, maybe the elite ones will beat him, you know, at 155 pounds. But my hunch is the real way to give this guy problems and to assert yourself is you better test his ground game because at least at this level, you know, when we get to the top 10, top five, it'll be different. But at this level, shit. <laughs> that dude is vicious. Vicious. Gavin Tucker, man. Wow. Can't say enough nice things about Gavin Tucker defeating Billy Quarantillo 30-27 across the board. At the beginning of this fight, it was very rough and rugged, and there was a real struggle for who was going to define the complexion. But by the end, it was the governor, Gavin Tucker. And the reason why you can say that is because at the end, he was doing whatever he wanted to. Switching stances, landing, getting out of the way, rolling underneath Quarantillo's shots, getting takedowns whenever he wanted. He was able to pass. Again, him using also insteps um, through position change to hold top position. You know, he was just able to really get into a flow state, define the terms of it. Basically, the problem was Billy Quarantillo is very, very talented, and he's young too, right? How old is Billy Quarantillo? Uh, according to Wiki, he is 30, well, 32 years old. Uh, how old is Gavin Tucker? He is 34, a little bit lo- longer in the tooth. But to me, it was Gavin Tucker just, um, he wanted to keep the fight at a nice pace, but slow it down. And Quarantilla wanted to go, I think, at a much higher pace. And then through that pacing, plus his skill, create openings and take advantage of it. And Tucker would simply not let him do that. In fact, it was quite the opposite. It was Tucker who was commanding range, who would be going first. And when he wasn't going first, he was getting out of the way, rolling under, creating angles on him. I mean, everything you wanted to do, getting behind him. It was solid, solid work from Gavin Tucker. I mean, he really is coming along in that featherweight division. And 
Um, you know, he always had hype behind him, and then he got the shit beat out of him by Rick Glenn, which at the time I was very surprised by. But it looks to me like he's much better than Rick Glenn now, and um, really put the pieces of his game together. The firepower, I'm there's an open question about, but everything else, tremendous, tremendous performance. Tisha Torres just getting angry and beating an overmatched Sam Hughes. Sam Hughes telling her corner she can't see. Her corner's like, all right, let's wave it. Then she's like, no, no, no. The corner's like, okay, we take it back. At that point, it's too little too late. And, you know, listen, there are people like, oh, she quit. Listen, you can't fucking see. It's deranged to go and fight. I know fighters will do that because that's who they are. But if you really care about health and safety and a fighter says she can't, or he or she says they cannot see, it doesn't matter what they want to do or what the corner wants to do. The fight is over. The big takeaway for Tisha Torres here is that the ferocity looks to be back. She had a long slump in her career. I think a four-fight losing streak. Who was it? Yeah, she had lost to Jessica Andrade, Joanna, Zhang Wiley, and Marina Rodriguez. Now, those are not chumps. She's fighting three former champions there from the UFC. But, you know, still, now she's got two wins in a row. One over Brianna Van Buren and now Sam Hughes. And that was supposed to be Angela Hill, so that's not the same quality of competition. But this will be a nice boost for her, I think, um, competitively professionally certainly and it was good to see like when she's just kind of reacting to what they're doing it's not the same she has to get out there and you know use her physical strength push people around be dynamic with your attack and and you saw that here and then chase hooper defeating peter barrett via heel hook listen i said it with charles Oliveira. i'm gonna say it here with chase hooper the guy is so young you should be very careful about like defining his identity at this point he will get better training with ryan hall can only help and the imanari rolled into a heel hook but he's got a lot of foundational pieces of the game missing in the stand-up i mean you can say that like charles Oliveira's got you know good jiu-jitsu he's also got really good takedowns he's got very good stand-up and he has good strategic sense hooper just has to clash into his opponents he's taking a lot of unnecessary damage he doesn't have a lot of the other pieces of the game that he needs, and I worry he's here a little too soon. So we'll see who they give him because the UFC likes him, the fans like him. Once he's on the ground, he's dynamite. But getting there and then doing everything else in between then, from when the bell rings to where you can get to the ground, assuming you can, there are so many pieces of his game missing. So I, I, you know, I understand it. He's crazy young. I wasn't doing anything nearly this successful when I was his age. It's not an attack. It's just an honest observation that if you want to stay here and you want to do interesting things, you, you got you got to fix that. You got you've got you've got to add a lot of things that are not there. Uh, your fight of the night, Figueredo and Moreno, which is kind of obvious. Performances go to Kevin Holland and Fizayev. Kind of felt like Oliveira deserved a performance bonus, if you're asking me. But what are you going to do? Um, okay, before we get out of here. I've been thinking about like how to add different segments to this. I want to add something where, the, and this is my fault, but I want to do it going forward. The night of the fight, I want you to email me. Um, and you can do this for the upcoming one. And I'll put out a thing on Twitter at the time asking for it. Your biggest takeaway from anything on the card. Anything. LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. We'd love to get some feedback on this. And then next week, I'll add in things to not forget. I'll put it on there. What was your biggest takeaway from the fight, uh, not main event, co-main event, anything, anything on the card, anything you want, and we'll start doing that, yeah? I think that'll be a lot of fun. Okay, like the video, uh, subscribe to the channel. I think we'll be back tomorrow. I'm going to do an Oliveira versus Ferguson breakdown, something else maybe, we'll see, um, for technical difficulties, but uh, yeah, that's it for now, all right? Thank you guys so much for watching, and until then, uh, what's my sign-off for this? I need a good sign-off. Um,
Enjoy the fights.